Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups, no more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Those moments when we're just raw with one another and we're trying and it's so hurtful, but like, I think they build on each other and I think we're still making progress and I do see a lot of hope in me too. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We're going to catch up on impeachment. We're going to think about Me Too three years out from the Access Hollywood tape, two years out from Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's blockbuster reporting on Harvey Weinstein in the New York Times, and a year out from Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony in the Kavanaugh hearings. So that will be in the main segment. Then we will end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. You're going to hear all of this recorded live in Denver, Colorado, from the Evolving Faith Conference. Before we dive in, I want to make sure that if you'd like to spend time with us in person, you're getting your tickets for our Washington, D.C. or Dallas, Texas tour stops. We will be with the renowned journalist Susan Page for our Washington, D.C. stop and with M.J. Heger, candidate for the United States Senate in Dallas. We would love to see you there. Evolving Faith is a conference for wanderers and seekers and spiritual misfits, and we were so honored to be invited by Rachel Held Evans to attend. We felt Rachel's absence acutely and very much hope that the conversations we had there honor her. Thank you to Sarah Bessie and Jeff Chu and Jim Chafee and everyone at Evolving Faith for having us. Thank you to everyone who attended our session. And without further ado, here is that discussion. Please welcome Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers. So on Friday's show, Where We Were in the World was President Trump was calling for China to investigate 
Joe Biden and his family. Correct. And that was normal. Cool. Totally that normal. That was cool. Usual. How things go. Um, and so we expressed our horror at that. And then Beth, another story broke that night at like, I mean, it was like 10.50 p.m. Right. And you were like, Adam Schiff just sent out a 25-page document right after I did all this research. Like, we're just... We're I get published on the Nightly Nuance, and 30 seconds later, 25 pages from the House Intelligence Committee gets published. <laughs> That's how it rolls right now. So there was a big drop of all these text exchanges between ambassadors. Mainly we had Ambassador Taylor to Ukraine and Ambassador Sondland to the European Union. And Ambassador Taylor's text message can only be expressed as frustrate on a spectrum from frustrated to panicky to I mean they're in kind of in between he's he was concerned he was concerned and I think my big takeaway from this latest text this latest document dump is I was really focused on the quid pro quo of the Ukrainian call with regards to military aid because that is such a big dang deal but it also seems like what the Ukrainian president was worried about in the beginning was the meeting, and they were really using a meeting at the White House with President Trump as a, you want this? You gotta give us the investigation. That was the quid pro quo to start with. These text messages raise so many questions to me because why is the EU's ambassador running point on Ukraine? Ukraine is not part of the European Union. There are folks in Ukraine who would like it, exactly. but they wish they were. I mean, there, it, there's a split in Ukraine, right? You have people in Ukraine who are still loyal to the more kind of Russian view of the world, and you have people who desperately want to be part of NATO and the EU. And so I don't really understand Sondland's role. That's a big question that I have. It's funny because I find myself of two minds here. There's the part of me that's like, I'm done. I don't need any more facts. I know mm -hmm. what I need to know. This is bad. This is wrong. We need to do something. And then there's the part of me that's like, but I have so many questions about how all of this was operating. I think what we can take from the text messages today is that the State Department has known about this problem for mm -hmm. a long time. It brings me back to we have one whistleblower blowing open what so many people knew was bad news. Yep. It took one person to blow open something that so many people have been touching for months. Oh, and Ambassador Sondland's, we're gonna take this conversation offline. Okay, look, I went to law school and I only play a lawyer on TV. I don't have a lot of legal experience. But sometimes triggering an offline conversation looks just as bad as maybe perhaps having the illegal conversation. I mean, like when you say, no, we're gonna talk about this in person, what else is that supposed to mean? I miss the sound of your voice. I mean, I that was a sketchy friend. So we're going to get a lot more information. The Inspector General for the Intelligence Community testified this week. Depending on who you care to listen to, it sounds like he didn't have a lot of new information to share. What he really focused on was walking through how he determined that the whistleblower complaint was credible. And we don't know much more than that right now. That was his process, and that's what he outlined to Congress. You also heard from members of Congress that they're tired. They spent nine and a half hours with Kurt Volker. Um, and Mike Quigley said, like, we need a little bit of a break here, and I can understand why. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. And then we also have subpoenas issued. And it sounds like these subpoenas have a lot of questions for the vice president as well. Mm -hmm. What was the vice president's role in all of this? Because Mike Pence does quite a bit of diplomacy. He is a fairly active vice president in the historical spectrum of vice presidents on the world stage. And so we should learn more about all of that this week as well. I do get concerned, to your previous point, like the more information we add and the bigger this gets, do we, do we lose the American populace? Yeah. And I get a little scared about that. I just want to like yell for the mountains, like, stay with us. We can do this. If we can follow the plot of House of Cards, we can do this, y'all. <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> and so I did read, <laughs> I read a, um, an article today that was like, why is it, why does it feel like it's moving so fast? And it was interesting because it distinguished between the Mueller report, which was being led by the FBI, which not surprisingly likes to th keep things contained and secret until they have something to report, unless James Comey gets a bee in his bonnet. But otherwise, that's what happens. But this one is because it's being led with Congress, who likes to do 
almost nothing in secret. That's why it feels so different. It feels like it's, it's such an accelerated pace. I mean, I feel like if you were probably in the working on the Mueller team, they probably felt like we feel like right now, right? Because they were catching stuff and being like, whoa, what's this text message? Or, oh my gosh, you know? But we, that was all private, so we weren't following along with the, with the, the pace of the document drops. I, I'm conflicted about this, too, because I do feel like every day is just this waterfall of information, and I also feel like not one day since January of 2017 has been fast. You know, it feels to me like we've been building on this long arc. We have some questions from listeners that I thought we should address this morning. So Jamie asked us, why complying with subpoenas seems optional for Mike It's Pompeo not for y'all. Don't get the impression that you, average Joe and Jane, can ignore a subpoena. That's only for the really special people. Well, so this is something that I told people in my family so many times after law school. So what happens when you graduate from law school, I'm sure some of you are lawyers in the room and know this, is that everyone in your life has a legal issue suddenly that they Mm -hmm. need your help with. And they believe that you, baby lawyer, are qualified to help them with that legal issue. And And so they teach you in law school to say, you know what you should do? You should get a lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) Get your lawyer. Who does that kind of work, right? Mm -hmm. But... Part of what those conversations always sound like is, isn't it illegal to do X, Y, Z? And my response has always been, sure, and it only matters if it's illegal if you're going to enforce the law. So that means you private citizens, you want to pay for a lawyer, you want to go to court, you want to go through the process of a trial, then we'll see if a judge agrees with us about our interpretation of this law. That's expensive and that's hard. And so when you get to the highest levels of our government, we know where we have this conflict between one branch of government and another, Congress and the executive, everybody understands that enforcing the laws against each other means a trip to the Supreme Court eventually. And that buys you so much time and it muddies the waters. To your point, Sarah, it brings more and more stories process stories into light. That's what you hear Republicans doing right now in Congress, process stories. Kevin McCarthy Mm -hmm. doesn't like the way the impeachment inquiry began. He thinks Nancy Pelosi should have had a vote of the caucus of the entire House of Representatives. So we're going to get more of these process stories as things move forward, and it distracts from the substance. The subpoenas are not optional, but the question is, will the Supreme Court enforce those subpoenas against the State Department and against others in the, the Trump administration? And the process stories are so gassed. Sliding. That was my favorite joke on Saturday Night Live where they were like, they keep saying, well, you murdered somebody. And instead of responding, no, I didn't, they go, who told you that, Bob? Like, that's no, 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 no. The process, the point here is that you did something that was very bad. Not who brought up the fact that you did something very bad. Not that that's not important in the legal process, but to manipulate that for, you know, public relations purposes is really it's it's interesting. It's an interesting approach. I would like to see, it's reported that Mike Pompeo sent a letter to House Committee Chairman last night. I want to see that letter, but the letter said basically, not giving you the documents you requested, and we'll talk further. And so I, I really want to understand where they're going from a process perspective, because I'm a nerd and I like that stuff. But I think PR-wise, that's, that's where things are going. I mean, I do think it is different in that pr- when we were investigating... When congr- we, with me and the congressional Democrats, um, when the congressional Democrats, right, um, congressional Democrats were heading up these investigations previous to the whistleblower report, and the Trump administration was stonewalling left and right, and continues to stonewall. The the, the court process was the one vehicle available to them. And it is still a vehicle available to them, but they have the additional vehicle of just tacking that on to an article of impeachment. Because the truth is, the additional, they have documents already in their possession on which they can base the article of impeachment for their concerns of however they want to phrase their concerns about the, the quid pro quo. And so... I mean, the, the subpoenas for the additional documents would be nice, but they have that. And so every time else, every, every other time that they stonewall, they can tack that onto an article of impeachment for obstruction. So now they have two options, right? They can, they'll fight it through the courts, and, like Adam Schiff announced in the, in the press conference, they can tack each additional one onto the article of impeachment for obstruction. So here's the other process thing to watch. So have y'all seen the headline that Tucker Carlson wrote this piece for, I think, the Daily Caller saying, okay, he shouldn't have done this? Which, just let's all take a moment. I mean. Thanks. Good. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, thanks. That's Walker. not our compliment for this week. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a bridge too far. No. So. Tucker Carlson has said this, and we should say Senator Romney has said that this is wrong. Senator Sass has come out. I mean, there are some people who are finding like a little bit of honesty. But Tucker Carlson's piece then argues the remedy, if you think this is wrong, is an election. And that's not an unreasonable argument, but it is a strategic one, right? And coming from Tucker Carlson, that's a particularly strategic argument. And I am interested to see if that means we should expect another primary challenger to the president soon. We already got so many. Um, I, I, well, that, one I that might be straight. able to break through, you know, that might be able to break through. Mm. Or I, I don't know where that's going, but we should all keep an eye on that because that was not a decision made lightly for Tucker Carlson to write that op-ed and for it to be published and for it to be shared at the rate that it's being shared. And so whether that means that you start hearing more members of Congress saying, okay, it was wrong, but we should have an election and decide not do this impeachment business or we're gonna see a new player on the primary scene, something is gonna follow that, I think. Can I be truly cynical for a moment? It's your show, whatever you wanna do. <laughs> um, do we think that that is not just strategic for Donald Trump and the Republican Party, but also for Tucker Carlson and Fox News? Well, they I mean, do. <laughs> I heard, yes. Listen, there's a lot of reporting about Paul Ryan being on the board and spending lots of time with the leadership at Fox News saying, what are we going to do after this? Because there's going to be an after this, and we're going to have to figure out what that looks like. And yeah. so I, I think that's a, a fair I mean, because as much as I want to believe that Tucker Carlson's only priority is being like a soldier in the culture war, he also makes like so much money. Yeah. So much money. Don't look it up. It will make you so sad. One more listener question before we move on from mm -hmm. this. Christine asks us about, Christine has a phrase that she uses called the Trump trance. That's good. That's good. She said, so many people only believe what he says and are willing to ignore anything that doesn't align with what he is saying. Particularly among evangelicals, I've seen a call to pray for him for being persecuted. I'm struggling to figure out how to gracefully engage in conversation with someone under the Trump trance. Um, the other day at my church, a friend of mine, who is probably not under the, the Trump trance, we were doing an instructed Eucharist for the children, which is a really fun exercise. And we were, the children were supposed to be asking questions, but I was also asking a lot of questions because I'm a, I'm a baby Episcopal. And um, we got to the part about prayers for the people, and I was like, who writes these? And my friend was like, why, do you want to take the president out? And I'm like, no, he needs our prayers more than most. So, I mean, I guess that could be one. Yes, pray. All prayers will be in service to our country, sure. But I don't know beyond that. Well, here's something that I don't think we're talking enough about right now. Because when we discuss the president's call for Ukraine or China to investigate the Bidens, the framing that we're using around that is election interference. Because that's been our framing since 2016. My question is, what is the logical conclusion of a foreign government investigating citizens under those countries' criminal laws? If they find something, if they issue indictments, are we extraditing these folks now? What, like, what, what is this about? It's, I think the president, I don't know if I'm helping Christine, sorry. But what I want to say to my family members who I think fall in this category and, and beloved people in my life of all backgrounds. And, and Marco Rubio, right, who just told us that that thing on the White House lawn, he was just kidding. He was just baiting the rabid news media. Like, don't believe him when he says he wants China to investigate the Biden, silly us. What I want to say to all of them is like, he, he has been the president for three years now. So we've had some orientation. We've had some learning time. Um, Hopefully, he now understands that what he tweets is read by leaders all over the world. They respond to it, in fact, sometimes on Twitter. And that a call for an investigation like this from Ukraine or China, the, the end result of that is not some New York Times expose that says, actually, everything we've printed to this point is wrong. The consequences are so much more serious than that. And so... As I think about the Trump trance, I just want to say to people, is one guy worth this to you? Because that's what we're talking about now. We're not talking about tax policy 
or foreign policy in the traditional terms. We're not talking about abortion or any of the things that a lot of people... We're always talking about abortion. Yeah, but a lot of people... But this is the thing, right? A lot of people base their votes around traditional issues in these races, and that's not where we are now. What we, where we are now is, is one guy worth this? There are so many other people in this world who can represent your viewpoints and represent them from a place of much less hypocrisy, I'm just saying. Is one guy worth this? And that's the question I'm going to be having. But I think there's this aspect of the people in the Trump trance understand and can see in the same ways we can how unique he is, right? They recognize that. They recognize how differently he operates, and that's a positive to them. And so it's really difficult to navigate both, I like that he blows things up, I don't want to go back to Mitt Romney or John McCain, and say, like, there are other options. Because, like, the, if you're into Donald Trump, like, there's not a, another great option. Donald Trump Jr.? Like... You know, like, I don't... Take that back. (laughs) (laughs) Slowly. Um, So, I mean, well, there aren't any options right now. Like, there is literally, like, an entire generation, I think, of young conservative politicians adopting that style. I still think he is is a unicorn to a certain extent um, because of his background, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's what's so appealing to them. That's why they're, look, we're all, listen, let's, let's all be honest. We're all in a Trump trance, right? He sucks up all the oxygen. He occupies all the space and all the room. And, you know, to me, like you said, though, that the, the best path forward is to desperately try to orient ourselves to what are we doing here? What is the purpose of this gathering of individuals we call the United States of America? What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve isolation? Are we trying to achieve some sort of global coalition? Are we trying to achieve, like are we trying to go to it, to make it look like it did in the 50s? Like I I don't know. I don't know. We're definitely not all in agreement about that. But trying to figure out why is this particular style appealing? What are we trying to accomplish with it? Seems like a massive uphill battle, but especially with regards to how we are interacting with foreign countries about United States citizens and our interactions with foreign... Because what he's going to say when you say what happens with an investigation is, well, Ukraine cleans up their corruption and then we can give them aid. That's what he's going to say. And therefore, that's what anybody... So the Biden family is the source of all right. corruption in Ukraine. I mean, right. It's not... I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying that's going to be the response. Yeah. I think this question that you're posing, Sarah, is also a little bit different from the million think pieces we had about why did people vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think we need to move not past that because I think it's important still. And there are so many important issues embedded in that. But to open a new door, which is all we're trying to do, right? We're trying to bring the break the Trump trance. We're trying to open a new door with people. And I think the question is, are you willing to live in a country where not everything goes exactly as you think it should because you believe that your fellow citizens matter? And that's a hard question for us as Americans. We don't feel that way about many things, right? We want it to be our way. The thing that people like about Trump, even when they find him personally despicable, is finally everything is going my way. Finally, I have a bully on my side to advance this agenda, and that's all I care about, without saying, like, but I also live in a democratic republic where other people's opinions matter, too. And so I hope that's a door that we can open. In that vein, you have a compliment to share for both of us, right? Let me pull it up. Okay, so this came from a listener, actually, and it is Representative... Hakeem Jeffries, who's from New York State, and Doug Collins, a Republican from Georgia. Hakeem Jeffries, in case I need to tell you, from New York State, is a Democrat. They received a prize for civility in public life. And my favorite is Doug Collins from Georgia saying, game recognizes game. (laughs) 
Doug Collins is the speed talker, yeah. right? He's the person in all the hearings who talks so fast that you can't keep up with him. And Jeffries is like, I appreciate Doug Collins quoting one of the philosophical underpinnings of hip hop because Jeffries is a big hip hop fan and Collins is a big country fan. This is an endlessly entertaining partnership. But they sit, both sit on the House Judiciary Committee and they, their first bill they wrote together was to protect songwriters in 2013. And they created a joint Spotify list. I gotta go find it. <laughs> I just think music is like such a unifier. I love it so much. I love this whole story. And I thought that that was a really, really nice moment, especially from two members of the Judiciary Committee. They could use some playlists on Judiciary. Sheesh. Well, they're about to get a break because I think it's every, all this hustle is going to come from the Intelligence Committee. So... I'm sure they'll feel like they're totally on vacation right now. So next up, we are going to talk about how we are here at the two-year anniversary of when the Harvey Weinstein story broke and the one-year anniversary of the Kavanaugh hearings. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. for the anniversary of the Me Too movement, I read She Said, the book written by the two New York Times journalists um, who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. Has anybody read this book? Everybody stop what you're doing. Get out your phones. Get on Amazon. Order it right now. It is so good to see these women who were on the ground, like making, putting these pieces together and, and their concerns and the women's concerns. Oh my God, the moment when Ashley Judd decides to go public, I feel so confirmed in my undying devotion for her. I feel proud as a Kentuckian. Like it's just, it's so good. And it really took, I think, this anniversary conversation as well as the, the New York Magazine did a really beautiful article called The Toll of Me Too where they interviewed all these women who went public with different types of Me Too stories and shifted the conversation 
which has really predominated so much of the Me Too movement, which is on the men. And there's this really great quote that I wanted to read from Rebecca Traister's essay about this, The Toll of Me Too. She says, we crane our necks to see the wreckage of powerful male careers without even bothering to wonder about the women whose lives and careers those men damaged. Because it was the men who were powerful, some of them already familiar to us. And because they were men whom we have been encouraged to view as fully human, we are led often unconsciously to be more fascinated by their stories, to understand them as complex and nuanced and interesting characters, even in their villainy. A scrap of ambiguity entrances us in powerful men. While we find less dramatic or interesting the complexities and internal contradictions of those who step forward against them. And so I think as we think through this anniversary and what has happened, it feels like the, the shift in our attention to the women has been so powerful and important and a really good orientation for this conversation. So the journalists that wrote She Said are Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, if you're looking for that book. It's a really interesting book about journalism, mm -hmm. too, uh, just of the process of how do you know which stories to follow? How do you know what's credible enough to print? How do you establish enough trust with people to get them to step off this ledge and share their stories publicly? It's a really important book for this time on so many levels, and I think that's really where my head has been in this conversation. Me Too is talked about so often in isolation, but Me Too is just about power. Mm -hmm. And everything we just talked about in connection with impeachment is about power. Everything about that Trump trance is about power. And in one way, it's too much to try to hold all those conversations together. It's too much for us to sort through all of it. But in another, I think that connection to power is really important. Our dear friends and mentors, Ambassador Swanee Hunt and Carol Edgar, her lifelong friend and colleague, sent us some resources for this episode. And one of the organizations that Ambassador Hunt is deeply involved in, Demand Abolition, looks at sex work and why, why people purchase sex and what it would take to stop people from purchasing sex. And there's a really interesting report, we'll link it in the show notes if you wanna dig into it, but, but the gist of it is like, what would it take to stop people from purchasing sex? A little bit more risk that they'd get caught. And the story thus far has been on criminalizing the behavior of the sex worker, not the purchaser. And so Ambassador Hunt is very committed to ratcheting up the stakes for the purchaser. And when I think about, I was kind of like disappointed that that was the conclusion, you know, because we tell ourselves so many stories that, well, maybe this is about sex addiction for people, or, you know, maybe there's something, you know, sociologically or psychologically going on here. And you read this report and it's like, what would it get me to stop uh, being a little bit more scared that I get caught? It's just about power. It's about how much power I feel as I move around in the world versus how much power I'm at risk of having exercised against me. Well, and as we sit here yesterday when I was listening to all the speakers and I was thinking about the evolving faith community, I thought, man, Me Too is just evolving culture. That's all it is. We're working through our ideas about power and gender. And w one of the big things I'm thinking about as we look at this anniversary and what she said and... and reading from people who were really on the ground is the process. Like, what's, what, what is the process we have? That's just, I mean, in some ways, the decriminalization of sex work is a process question. Mm -hmm. I mean, D.C. is thinking about decriminalizing it right now. And I think that moving the process off the burden of the sex worker to the purchaser, like, that's what you're talking about. It's a process shift. One of the best quote, one of my favorite quotes from the book, a woman says, one of the women who reported her harassment, she says, what I'm angry about is that there isn't another way. There isn't a system in place. You speak up through localized channels such as HR and nothing is done and nobody listens. And the only other avenue I've come to know is the press, which means mass exposure. And the authors are talking about the people who, so what's really interesting about the book is they orient, the first part of the book is the Harvey Weinstein case. And then the second half of the book is the Kavanaugh hearings. And just talking about the, the different processes, in some way it analogizes nicely with a Mueller report, which was secret and the process was all contained, the journalistic investigation with the New York Times, and then the Kavanaugh hearing is more like impeachment, which it was just like instantaneously in public. And so 
the people who were either saying Me Too was moving too fast or Me Too wasn't doing enough, we both had, we're all expressing process problems. We don't have great processes to deal with the cultural problems, the societal issues that Me Too exposed. And I think the way that woman, like you have one private process that doesn't get anything done and the only other option is to take it public? Like there seems like there should be a universe of options in between there. I think part of our issue with really having that universe of options is that when people raise a concern, like the concerns that get raised on the spectrum of Me Too behavior, and, and you were making this point before we started talking in front of everyone, Sarah, that Me Too as a label is too much. It's carrying everything from rape to workplace harassment to catcalling. I mean, it's, it is a lot. And while certainly there are some threads that connect that behavior, we're asking one category to hold on to so many different experiences with such different ramifications involving such different kinds of people. But be that as it may, when you are involved in, let's say, a workplace investigation of harassment or a Title IX issue on a college campus, something like that, it is so deeply uncomfortable for everyone involved because here we all are together in a space that we have to continue to occupy all together. And we don't do that kind of discomfort well. This happens in churches too, right? Something uncomfortable gets raised and it tends to get buried so we can stop the discomfort because it's too much. How do we keep showing up here with one another if it's gonna be so uncomfortable every time? You know, that's why so often something gets investigated in a workplace and the report from that never sees the light of day because what would we do if we had all this information about each other? And so our reaction to that has been now this incredibly public process where we say, well, if I can't handle it within my community of people, and if my community of people won't be here for me to handle this conversation, then I'm just going to send it out into the world and see what happens. And I do think that has levels of unfairness for every single person in the process. It's going to take us years to sort that out. And I think the first answer has to be, are we willing to give some things up in terms of our own comfort to actually deal with these issues in our workplaces and actually deal with them in our schools and our churches? Well, I mean, in a perfect world, people of faith would be uniquely suited to deal with uncomfortable conversations about value systems and cultural traumas. But when the Me Too movement repeatedly bubbles up in the faith community and we have the same sort of traumas and the same sort of power struggles, then it's just, it's like everyone is just being asked to re-traumatize themselves over and over again in order to help everybody else deal with a problem that they suffered through which is just excruciating. And, you know, we had, a, we had an interview the, probably a couple weeks ago. And this, the woman who was interviewing us said, you know, I'm struggling through my faith journey. And the moment where everything changed is I went, it was in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearing, and she had worked abroad with faith organizations, with sex workers, with women who had been assaulted, and then she went to a gathering for Christian women and she thought, okay, this is, I won't be alone. I'll be able to express my concerns. And she was shut down. That was my exact reaction. Shut down. And she was devastated. She was devastated. And, you know, the, the unique position that faith communities can and should hold to be able to witness someone's pain and trauma and then to shut the door, you know, it's, it's why we're all here, right? It's why we're all here. And I think to ask an entire culture to do that, to, to carry sort of the, the whole life cycle of patriarchy's impact from the assault on a teenage girl through sexual harassment at the highest levels of corporate culture and everything in between is a big lift. But let me just take a moment to say, I don't think we failed. I don't think it's over. I think that the, every time the conversation continues, what was I reading recently? 
that I think it must have been, it was in She Said. And there was a board member on the Weinstein Company who was struggling with it and his teenage daughters and, and some of them were in college and they just took him to task and they would not let him go. And they were like, no, you don't get it. You're not gonna get it and we're gonna stay here and I'm gonna yell at you until you do. <laughs> do I have firsthand experience with that? Yes, I do. And like, but I think those moments when we're just raw with one another and we're trying and it's so hurtful, but like, I think they build on each other and I think we're still making progress and I do see a lot of hope in me too. I see a lot of hope that we looked at something really ugly as a nation. And I didn't get the outcome I wanted every time. But it, it was there, and we all witnessed it. And people of faith understand the power of witnessing something. And so, you know, I do have some hope as we sit here a year out from Kavanaugh and two years out from the Harvey Weinstein story and three years out from Access Hollywood which all happen at the same time of the year, and so next year, everybody stay home from September to October. <laughs> Nobody do anything next year from September to October. Do you hear me? So, Ronan Farrell, you in particular, you need to go on vacation in the fall. And so I just think, like, we're doing it, and it's really awful, and it's hard, but it's out there. And, you know, my father-in-law says, you don't ever put Pandora back in the box. That's not how cultural society works. And so I do take great hope in that. I do. I think in order to move from all of America discussing what happened on Aziz Ansari's date. I don't want to talk about that anymore. To, to a real reckoning in our spaces, in our communities, in our organizations, one of the things that we have to be honest about is how we are so comfortable with our values in the abstract. So churches are a great example of this, right? Because faith communities are pivotal in the fight against human trafficking. So in the abstract, the idea that women and girls are systematically abused, we are there for that. But when it comes to the vulnerability it requires to look in our own community and think not only that our friends, our leaders, are capable of systematically abusing women and girls, and not just women and girls, but predominantly for purposes of this conversation, but also that our women and girls are vulnerable to that. I have so many conversations about allegations of harassment where the response is, that woman is so tough, there's no way she could be a victim. And it takes a real understanding of human vulnerability and a real openness to look at ourselves and say, what am I capable of doing and what am I capable of having done to me to be able to really process these things together, to do that witnessing that you're talking about, Sarah? And that's a lot of work. And we, I think we just have to keep inching ourselves in the direction of I can be open to the fact that someone who seems invincible is not. Whether that means that that seemingly invincible person has done wrongs that I cannot fathom, or that seemingly invincible person has been subjected to wrongs that I can't possibly imagine. In a conversation yesterday, I had somebody very brilliant tell me that things are never one thing at a time. We anticipate trauma, or we anticipate crises, and we think we're going to deal with like one, it's going to be one thing and we're going to deal with it never works like that. And I think you see that in such an illustrative way with Me Too. And you hear the stories, of particularly workplace harassment, where there's this, this undercut of like, you hear these women, well, I shouldn't have done that. Or I really did want to, I wanted to succeed. That's the, the, the powerful combination of ambition in all these stories and how people feel about women who are ambitious. And the, and the, the just, it, incredibly complex combination of human motivations, of cultural influences, of societal stereotypes. And we want it to be easy to sort all that out. We wanted to say this person's a good person and this person's a bad person, or this person's strong and this person's weak and we need to protect the weak. And it, but it's never that simple, never that simple. And I hope if we learned anything from Me Too, 
That's what it is, is that when we're dealing with issues like power and gender and ambition and like capitalism, which feels really tied up in all this, like it's just going to be hard. We're dealing with a lot of different things at one time and a lot of different types of trauma at one time. And the more we can just face that and deal with the complexity of something that tackles everything from Harvey Weinstein to sex work to Aziz Ansari's bad encounter, like that's, we're doing the work as human beings. So I think that capitalism is one thing to pull out before we wrap this conversation up because a huge part of she said that I think has been there the whole time and Gretchen Carlson has been way ahead of this is can we force people to sell their stories in exchange for settlement? Mm -hmm. Can we do these non-disclosure agreements where something is done to someone and we wrap it up with a contract that says I will give you money in exchange for you not suing me, but also you can't talk to any about, anybody about this ever. And I think Gretchen Carlson is really doing the work mm -hmm. with Congress, trying to get legislation put forward, limiting the use of these things. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer. I've written a thousand, I'm going to pay you money, you release your claims against me documents, and I don't have a problem with that. Claims and stories are different. Claims and stories are different. The idea that we would ask someone never to speak of their grief and trauma again, that's, that's unacceptable. That is immoral. We should not be doing that in America for any reason. For people who are not with us, who will be listening to this podcast, I want to describe briefly a grief and lament service that took place at Evolving Faith yesterday because I thought there was something so powerful. We were all given a rock and imagined some form of grief on that rock, and then we were given this option to drop it or hold on to it. I thought it was so powerful to say sometimes you can choose to hold on to it because you are not ready to let go of it. And I think that what we have done in trying to contain the stories of women who have been abused or harassed or raped, when we've said you can never talk about this again, is forced women to drop those rocks immediately and said money will make it okay for you to do that. And there are so many issues in America right now where we have said money will make this okay. And money is a part of it, let's be clear. Sometimes money is the best form we know how to at least get started on making amends. But money cannot be the totality of it. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I think the, again, so much of this, because it's a huge cultural, societal conversation, and because it's so amorphous, we think there aren't black and white things that can get to fixing it. But let me tell you that there are. And making mandatory arbitration agreements like that, non-disclosure agreements like that, illegal within sexual harassment claims is sure as heck a great place to start. The extent to which... Now, I, I do hope that even if we can't immediately make that all illegal, because nobody gives me a magic wand, which I'm still very upset about, because um, it would be so much faster than the congressional process. Um, <laughs> Some of the power of those non-disclosure agreements and the arbit- a mandatory arbitration was the idea that we're presenting like this as an option, but you don't really have an option because nobody will believe you and it won't go anywhere. So this is the only option you take. And if nothing else, I hope Me Too illustrated that like, oh, hell no, you got some other options. You got some other options out there. Let us illustrate that you, that you don't have to live with this in secret, that you are, don't let anybody tell you that you're alone and you're the only one dealing with this. The, you know, so much of the power of the Weinstein story and what those two women were so brilliantly able to do was to create this coalition and be like, now some of it they couldn't, the crazy part is like they couldn't tell the other women because of confidentiality. They're just going to be like, you have to trust me. Please, you have to trust me. Oh, and that's something else I want to touch on really quickly. So many times with the Weinstein story, the previous reporting was done by men. And so much of the progress that these women were able to make is because they were women looking at other women and, being, and telling them, you can trust me. And it reminds me so much of Rebecca Tracer's book on the 2012 election. And she talks about the reason that Amy Poehler and Katie Couric and Tina Fey were able in all these different ways to get to what was bugging so many of us about Sarah Palin is because they were in the room. Because they were in the room and because Katie Couric, when she questioned Sarah Palin about her news sources, looked a lot different than a male anchor questioning Sarah Palin about her news sources. And, and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler standing up there and saying, stop calling me sexy and stop saying I have cankles. Like they, because they were in the writer's room. They were the first female writers or head writer in the Saturday Night Live writer's room. And just like when we say there's power in diversity and there's power in perspective, it's not just the power of bringing that perspective for the first time, but that there is, there is more movement in, available to you when you share that perspective that I don't think we could re- we really anticipate it. And so I think so much of that story breaking is because it was women breaking it, women telling women's stories. And I think that's, that, that's another part of this anniversary that gives me a lot of hope and seeing that, that, that hopefully there will be more of that in the future. I think that is a good moment to make our hard turn to what's on our minds outside of politics. We always like to leave people a little lighter than where the news takes us. 
So Sarah, what is on your mind outside of politics? Well, I'm in Colorado for the first time. I'm really excited. My family is here and we are going to the mountains. So I'm in a really um, traveling new spaces frame of mind. And I think that it's just, it, it shouldn't surprise me at this point. Um, but every time you just change your physical landscape, and let me tell you, this physical landscape is quite a bit different than Kentucky. <laughs> you have more space, I'm like, a, like a lot, so much more space. And just being in a new space, seeing a new landscape, being, in, being at Evolving Faith for the first time, and feeling you know, that, that sort of mix of disorientation and opportunity <laughs> to see the world in a new place, to see a new place of the world. Never gets old, man. It never gets old. Well, so one of the things that I am dealing with here in Colorado is the lack of humidity. <laughs> and I bring this up because there has been um, a very heartwarming amount of interest in my vocal cords lately. <laughs> so I got some messages from listeners who are trained like vocal professionals saying, we hear a problem. And we think you need to get on this problem because we would like to listen to you talk in the future which I really appreciated. Actually, the thing I most want to say is that there's such generosity in hearing a problem and being willing to label that problem, especially a problem that someone might not have the capacity to label for themselves. And people have been so gracious in talking to me about this. So I have had my first uh, coaching session with a vocal rehab specialist, Sarah, who's a listener of our show, who was wonderful. She taught me so many things in an hour. But one of the things that she told me so this is everyone's takeaway who's not having vocal issues. Um, I feel like I'm having sympathetic vocal issues at this point. I know Sarah keeps being like, what does it feel like? Tell me again, what does it feel like? Because I might have oh, oh, do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have it? <laughs> I mean, listen, I, listen I've, you know, my life has been a warm-up for this gig. I was named most talkative in high school. Like, I do feel like, surely to God, I will not get... If, that would be truly ironic. And at this point in my life, after receiving every blabbermouth award they give from K-12... through that I have now become a person who talks for a living and then some sort of like taxing issue on my vocal cord presents itself. <laughs> well, so um, I'm, I'm fine, A, uh, so no one worry about this. I have lots of exercises to do and strategies and it's gonna be great, it's, it's totally fine. I'm so glad Sarah reached out early before it became a problem. But what she taught me is that hotels are crazy dry. Now, I've always kind of known Look, that I wake up a little Look, they were keeping it from like, us. Why'd y'all know that and not share? <laughs> Um, but she said that, like, there's actually hotel rooms are about 30% humidity, and we need, like, 50 to 60% humidity. And so you got to think about this in your hotel room. And there are lots of ways to approach this, but I was telling my husband about this, who is, like, if there is a product that solves things, my husband has explored this product and found it for 50% off. And actually, if we use the American Express, we'll get a rebate. Like this is one of my husband's gifts in the world. So I'm telling him about my concern about being in a dry hotel room and he goes, hang on. <laughs> and he comes back with a travel humidifier that's like this big. You screw a water bottle on top of it, and it just... So I have been... I've done very well in my room in Colorado, thanks to my husband and to Sarah, our listener. It's too uh, funny. And it's great, to, it's great to receive help. I'm an Enneagram 2, which I feel we should all just have our numbers on shirts here at Evolving Faith. Um, but to receive this much help is like a moment in life for me, and I am very grateful. Love it. Thank you again to everyone at Evolving Faith. We will be back here with you on Friday to catch up on all of the week's news. Between now and then, you can watch Sarah's Instagram briefings in the morning or join me for the nightly nuance on our Patreon page. Thank you again for being here. And we'll let the audience at Evolving Faith close us out. Keep it beautiful. Thank you so much. Y'all Enjoy really the rest of your day. You like for that, y'all. I heard you. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. 
We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.